Well, greetings here on Neat Background for what is today, the uh, 21st of September, September, David. September. Uh, as we head into the final stretch of the presidential campaign and also some local stuff, and we're going to talk all uh, about all of those things today on Deep Background. Um, uh, a couple of quick notes. Apologize for last week. We had some technical problems, which I hope, I think we've solved, A. <laughs> and then B, uh, if you have some time and want to spend a little time listening to Bob Dole and Nancy Kassebaum down in Lawrence on the 17th, I, I highly advise it. It's on the Deep Background page on iTunes, and it's just a fascinating discussion. Bob Dole particularly was clear, you know, for a guy that's 93, he was, it was just really a, a good, interesting discussion, so we invite you to do that. Okay, Scott Cannon with the Kansas City Star, welcome to Howdy. Deep Background. Okay, great. And uh, Steve Kraske with KCUR. Remember that name? Yes. Yeah, I do. Yeah, hi, David. Well, I'm trying to do several things here <laughs> on the podcast, including being the engineer today. Well, okay, so we're about, what, six weeks? We'll be a little more than six weeks out, the first debate around the corner. We talked a little bit about this in the podcast that didn't make it to air, but let's talk about that today. What what uh, do we expect next Monday, Steve, uh, from both of these candidates, and how much is at stake, really, in, that, in, in the debate, in your view? Oh, I think the first 30 minutes of the first debate is going to be important. Uh, crucial, decisive, I don't know if I'd go that far, but but clearly important as so many Americans who are still struggling with this decision between these two will size these uh, these two candidates up in these pivotal, these important moments of, the, of that first debate. You know, I keep thinking, David, about 2000 and Al Gore and George uh, W. Bush, and I keep thinking that, you know, in that debate, everyone expected Al Gore to mop the floor with George uh, W. Bush. Uh, he being the veteran politician and been the vice president and all these things, just like Hillary Clinton, uh, George W. Bush had been a governor of Texas, but still somewhat new on the national scene. And, and you know, Donald Trump been around, but has never held office before. So there's this dynamic here. So I just keep thinking the expectations for Hillary are through the roof, which is where she doesn't want those expectations to be going in. I just heard some tape on NPR coming in this morning. She's trying to lower expectations, you know, uh, just as quickly as she can. But everyone thinks Hillary will be the, the adult and can handle any situation, will be on top of her game. And I just think the expectations are too high, which all plays well uh, for someone like Trump going in. Talk about the specifics in a minute, Scott. But you've made some uh, – you, th- you think it's a pretty important moment in this campaign. I'm writing a story sort of for the weekend about the, the, you know, the debates – and you can find evidence on both sides. In some past campaigns, it's made all the difference, or arguably made all the difference. Reagan Carter, for example, they had one debate that year. Dukakis against George H.W. Bush. Yet last time, Mitt Romney, you know, killed in the first debate by common consensus and still lost by four points. Which is the which do we think will happen this time, and why? Yeah, well, if you look back to 2012, I think the other thing is that the. The consensus was that Obama bested him in the subsequent debate, so right. maybe that mitigated that a little bit. I still think it's a big moment. I, my question is whether it's if it's going to be the expectations game that dorks like us sort of look at, or will people say, you know, the, the, the whatever number of undecided are out there or unmotivated out there, which is another thing that's sort of dynamic that's going on. Well, they look at, well, I'll, I'll look at this as a way to pick who I want rather than who's better at this. And to me, more and more the campaign now looks like um, 
Hillary is the status quo, basically the world you know, basically an, a third Obama term. And Trump is, we're blowing the whole damn thing up. We're starting the world over again. And there's a, you know, you can make an intellectual argument, I think, for either one in a way. Um, you know, but, but his is radical change. She cannot make the argument that she's the candidate of change. Her probably strongest argument is, I'm a safe haven in a what's a crazy world, and he's sort of saying the world's so crazy we got to start from scratch. You guys, is that I'm overstating it? No, I don't think that. I think that's a good framing device, as good as any I've seen. The question is what what role the debates then play in that calculus. I mean, I talked to some communications people uh, yesterday, people who study debates. They say, look, first, remember a couple things. First, 80 to 85% of the people watching have already made up their minds. The debates mm-hmm. won't make any difference for those people. They're actually watching for affirmation of their views and will cheer when they hear Hillary say something or Trump or whatever and boo the other uh, candidate. So, so the undecided to use the debates are a pretty small universe of people. Of those people... Uh, I was told very few tune in to see who's the smarter candidate. You know, it's. A, I think one of the things we think about Hillary Clinton is that, boy, she has command of the facts, and she she's lived this for thirty years. And Donald doesn't study, and he doesn't know anything. But I was told yesterday, look, people people aren't interested in the facts; they're interested in demeanor, approach, yes. apparent intellect. Uh, you know, get us get a get a sense of the candidates. Uh, as potential presidents rather than are you for tax cuts or whatever. And so the real dilemma for the candidates is how to approach the, de- the, the, the demeanor part of the equation and not so much whether my idea about you know pregnancy benefits is better than yours. And in that sense, it, as crazy as Trump might be, it might feed into what you're talking about, which is it's time to blow everything up and, and just because I don't know everything doesn't mean it doesn't need to be blown up. And it, if that's the case, she might be in some trouble in this debate. I think that's right. His task is far simpler. Look what Hillary has to do. She has to be aggressive, tough for a woman. She has to be personable and show a, a personality uh, that we haven't seen much of in this campaign. Tricky for her. Uh, you know, she, she uh, you know, there's just so, so many things she, she has to do here. She has to demonstrate a, a, a command of the facts, but but we all know she's already there already. Um, and she has to be maybe a little inspirational to be, begin to get people to come out. And, and to the point where how important this, this debate is, these debates are, you know, yeah, most people have made up their mind who are watching this thing. But it's only going to be a small universe of people who decide Ohio and Florida and Pennsylvania. So this is the, you know, the first debate is the last huge moment before the election. There's two other debates that follow. The, the viewership will, will f- drop off, at least based on historical patterns. So, yeah, you know, people tune in for the first 30 minutes most often. So I think the first 30 are, are really important. And yeah, I, if, I, if, if, if you don't sway the country, you know, and that's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about appealing to that little chunk of people out there who are waffling, waffling back and forth. No, I, I don't disagree with that. But I think there's another alternative, and that is that 10 or 15 percent or 5 percent or whatever the number is in those battleground states that are still undecided might watch the uh, debate and say, in essence, I don't like either of these candidates. I still don't like them. I didn't see anything I wanted. 
I'll either stay home, not vote, I don't really care, I'm undecided because I don't pay that much attention anyway. If that turns out to be the case, then it's a base election where you have to motivate your people to get to the polls. And I think that's another challenge for Hillary Clinton oh, is, huge. particularly among young people, African Americans, to you know to motivate people to get to the she, polls. She, because in she's flatlining on the motivational yes. excitement metric right, right and now. And so, and 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 Trump has to get his uh, supporters excited in those battleground states. If that's the case, then you're watching it a real combat, watching a real combative debate in which there's not a lot of illumination, but a lot of you know, tweaking and finger pointing and accusations that that's des- that are designed to, in essence, and I talked to uh, an expert about this yesterday, designed to address, in essence, two audiences. You're not, it's not the whole audience for the debate. Hillary is talking to her people and Donald is talking to his people and th- th- there's no real common ground for them to meet. It's just an effort to give sort of two speeches on the same stage at the same time. Right. Y- y- does that make any sense? Uh, in yeah, terms no, of I, I agree. I, I, let me circle back to Steve's first 30 minutes. There's also peril for Donald Trump here. R- recall yeah, well, that in this campaign season, in the first 30 minutes of one debate, he revealed that he didn't know what the nuclear triad was. In the first 30 minutes of another debate, he actually talked about, he referred to the size of his penis. So if he says something that's that sort of off-color or that level of ignorance, at least what we expect for a person who's going to be the commander-in-chief, um, that'll matter too. And I, yeah, I yeah think but that's easy to fix, and he's not going to talk about his penis. Well, he's I not going to talk about his penis, not, but, not, but we know from, from that, that someone, something could get under well, his okay. skin and he'll, okay. he, he could easily reveal that he doesn't understand you know, something about the Baltics. Right, or the or, difference between the deficit and the debt, for example, right. which, <laughs> and, which uh, got George H.W. Bush in a little bit of trouble in right. one of his debates. And here's who I, you know, to your idea of, you know, those few critical voters in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Florida, swing states where small numbers matter. The other thing, you guys, I think I, I agree with you on the idea of motivation because you've got the, the, the Bernie person. Are they going to stay home because they're so disgusted or are they going to get out and vote for Hillary because they find Trump so offensive or threatening? Or are they going to vote for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson? And I think the motivation for, for Clinton is to paint him as such an unstable, reckless person that I don't care how much you despise me. And I almost wonder, does she have to address that sort of elephant in the room at some point in this election? I know you're not wild about me, but this guy. Well, she's sort of been saying that. Yeah, but does she say it in a debate? Right. I mean, I think I did hear two different voices in, in talking to people about this story. Some people think Hillary Clinton should tweak, you know, Trump, sort of make fun of him a little bit, get under his skin, attack his ego, call him stupid, call him bigoted or whatever. But I also talked to Democrats, Burdett Loomis, who you know down at the University of Kansas, and Scott, you know him too. He said, no, I don't think that's a wise strategy at all for her, her because he thinks – the debate would then start to careen in ways that neither candidate could control. They would, in essence, be insulting each other, and it becomes more of a roast than a debate. And if that's the case, she has more to lose than he does, because everybody already thinks that's the Trump persona. But Clinton's whole argument, and by the way, I saw somebody talk about this this week, she needs to start making an argument for herself. I mean, Trump is making sort of an argument that we don't recognize in any sort of grand sense. But basically, I think Scott's right, blow it all up, and I'm the guy to do it. But 
but Clinton's whole argument is, I'm not him. You haven't seen any ads yet, I'll do this, really, I'll do that, the other. Here's an opportunity for her to do that. So it seems to me it's trickier for her going in than it is for him. And that's, so, that's I'm not talking about thing. expectations, but her calculus is much more complicated. You know, does she attack him, not attack him? Does she go positive? Does she talk about herself? And how does she react to this sort of unpredictable guy uh, who, who flummoxed 15 other Republicans um, during the primary? Now, he's never debated one-on-one before, and he's never debated with a Democrat. It's always been a, with a Republican. The chances that he makes that kind of mistake, the penis mistake, are pretty high particularly if you can push him that way. Yeah, maybe. So, so, so I, I, I there, it's not that he is risk-free either in the debates. I, I agree, but I, I, I still think she can't win here. You know, if she has a solid performance, she won't be inspirational enough. If she's solid, she won't be uh, re- revealing enough of herself. You know, the, the bar is higher for her, and, and I think we walk away from this first debate I think it's easier for Trump to correct this kind of don't say something stupid thing. I think he's capable of, of that if he's coached by Kellyanne Conway and all these people are working with him now. But with, with Hillary, again, as you're saying, David, the math is much more complicated. She, 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 she won't, she'll be the one who people are critiquing most heavily come the next morning. What's the state of the race, do you think, Scott? What, what, where are we now? Polls aside, what's your just sort of gut sense of where we are six weeks out? Well, I think, I guess I agree with what you said earlier, that we're sort of reverting back to our, our red-blue world and that that's the base election. And whatever wiggle room is in the middle sort of depends partly on the debates and partly on, on other things that happened in the campaign. You know, it was just Friday when he did the birther thing. Um, and that was a moment in the campaign. It it, uh, it it alienated him with the the press in a very in a more obvious way than we've seen throughout the campaign. I think it might have stalled a little bit the gains he's made with minority voters in the last couple of weeks. You know, I think in um, earlier mid August um, he was polling literally at zero with a black vote in some polls, and then it was sort of up to five. It's up to like thirteen percent now. So if he gets thirteen percent, he'll win, right? I mean, that's much right. better than even. And so all this did. talk that he's he can't win because demographics are changing, whatever. Well, the the polls sort of, if you look in the little niches, it looks like that. But you, the in the end, it, it sort of evens out. He 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 wins just enough of those minority votes, and he and he kills in the uneducated white vote. Right. So um, I think the change for me, just on a gut level is that a Trump victory seems at least plausible now. Yes. It did not seem plausible maybe oh. arguably even three or four weeks yes. ago. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, not likely. Not likely. I think it's still likely she wins, but you could see a path for him. Yes, and that's the change. I couldn't say it any better. That's exactly what's happened here over the last three weeks. I'm doing a column this week on Democrats across Kansas City, many of whom are at a minimum concerned. Some of the, some of them are freaking out. They sense a change, the wind blowing in a new, new direction. Can they envision themselves living in a country that's headed by Donald Trump? Some of them are saying flatly, uh-uh. Yeah. I well, I there. mean, that's the point, isn't it, that mm-hmm. people are beginning to say or think, what would a Trump presidency right. look like? And again, I think a month ago, no one even thought that was possible. Mm-hmm. And that's a real, that's a real uh, victory for him. I mean, the first threshold is plausibility. 
Now, the debates could, you know, sort of reduce that. People would watch that and think, okay, I thought of him as president. Now I know it can't possibly happen. But if he meets that threshold, it's also this then, meta then, thing then, that once his what does the when it becomes the consensus that it's a real possibility that he's going to be president. Does that in turn right. sort of change, change the odds the right. that he could win? Mm-hmm. Because people will start to, to picture that. I, you know, the New Yorker had this long piece about what would a Trump presidency look like, right. and sort of went through look, foreign policy, domestic policy, and you know, it does look like a radically different world. Yeah, which leads directly into sort of the final thing I want to talk about today, and, and that's the way the role of the press in this election. Because I do think one of the dynamics you're seeing is that reporters are beginning to think, hey, this is plausible, and therefore we need to be a little tougher on Donald Trump than maybe we've been to date. Now, tell me, A, how, you know, there's a huge argument, Steve, as you know, about false balance and and uh, you know, how Matt Lauer did in, in his uh, forum. Believe me, there will be criticism of Lester Holt, who, who mm-hmm. hosts the first debate. Trump's already been seeding Trump, that a little Trump bit. Trump seeds that a little bit. Um, give me your impression of how the two candidates have been covered to, to date and how what what might happen over the next six weeks in terms of the what we do on well, this race. I, I, I don't think this has been the press's greatest moment, the media's greatest moment covering this campaign. You begin with the fact that, that the media at large had an impossible task covering a GOP a primary presidential field of 17 candidates, the largest field in the history of this country. As we all know from spending too many years doing this, to write a story in which you incorporate the views of 17 candidates is impossible. You know, you, you just simply, you can't do it. And then the emergence of Trump coming at a time when uh, not only TV but other forms of media, including print media now, is, is gauging its effectiveness by how many clicks we get on our stories. The rise of Trump has coincided in some ways with the newspaper approach now to news coverage, which is based on clicks and how many people read each story. I, I think we'd be fooling ourselves not to assume that didn't, that didn't help Trump in some important ways. You look back at the, the calculations of free media he earned during the primary campaign, a couple billion dollars or whatever the number was, compared to the second place candidate who got like $900,000 worth. You know, those are just numbers you can't ignore here. But I think, you know, the, as the media, the mainstream media has decreased in size, I think it's been harder. You've seen fewer long-form stories looking at the backgrounds of these two candidates, what they stand for, pressing them on certain issues, and um, it's, it's not been a great year. You know, I'm fascinated by the, the broader narrative that we'll take away as reporters from this race in terms of what how we attempted to sort of graft our 20th century approach on what is a 21st century mm-hmm. campaign that is not explicable by the normal rules. I mean, by by the normal, you know, the way you and I, all of us, grew up covering politics, the, the guy with more money, more organization, a Democrat, would win. That may not be the case this time, and and so we're trying to graft our own rules of, of how we cover, say, Donald Trump and his reality. You know, he blows through reality. It isn't. You know, you did a great piece annotating one of his speeches, and I think we all say, oh well. And the big push now is, oh, Donald Trump is a liar, and we've got to call him a liar. 
he's post-truth. Does that make any sense? That it's not just he, it's not just that he tells things he uh, says things that he knows are wrong. It's that the public doesn't hold him to a standard because of the way we run. But, but that's different than gauging how the media has performed in trying to well, cover Well, right, but that. how do you cover a, a candidate in a post-truth well, world? I, 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 maybe I'm not phrasing it right. Yeah, but I, To me, it's sort of how things clicked into place, accidents of history. The coverage of Clinton has been, it feels to me, sort of appropriately critical. There are, there's no quid pro quo between the the Clinton Foundation that we found and her performance as Secretary of State. But it's clear that simply having this huge charity made people feel like they had to give money there, give money to the private foundation to get access to the public official. And that was worth looking at. And the fact that, in addition to that, the email stuff, which she obviously set up because she'd been pounded after years in public life, and she wanted some place where she might be able to hide her messages, which mm -hmm. we do feel should be more right. in the public record. So she was, she, we've covered her as a likely next president, maybe the likely next president. And that, so that's, and I say we, the royal right, media, right. media writ large, which is a reminder to everybody out there, not a monolith. Trump was different. He was this reality TV star. Even when he caught fire early in the campaign, Few people thought it would last. It was sort of like Herman Cain four years before, and and Pat Robertson back in the day. There's Pat Buchanan, like, a lot right, of there's things. There's always somebody similar. out there yeah. who's kind of super exciting, but we don't think they're going to last. And yet he did last, and because of his particular personality and his particular relationship with the truth, it's created a conflict. And I, I, like I say, I think that Berther press conference, which was, I think you know, really disingenuous. And if you want to, we can talk, there's a Kansas City connection in there because of the Clinton stuff. But um, I, that may or may not be a change point. But you do people saying, you know, anchors on air saying, this is a lie. Right. And that was always sort of a, a big, you know, we're not going to cross that barrier. Right. It was always a big thing to... To, to challenge a candidate and say, are you calling but the other guy a liar right, as if right. that was something uh, you couldn't do? Although, don't you get a sense that some of the birther lie headlines were forced on the media to a certain degree by all this false equivalency? And how come Matt Lauer didn't call it a lie when he talked about Iraq? I mean, I do think that there's some, the pushback reporters have gotten maybe pushing everybody into a weird place. When you all talk about and, the expectations with the debate, I think there's the same sort of expectations yes. in that cover that, that expectations of Trump have been different for right. whatever reason. Right. I, I mean, my own view is and that, that, Excuse me. The yeah. other thing to remind people is that half the world out there thinks that the media is has been in a cabal with the Democrats forever. Forever. Right. That's just sort of a And that's never going to change. Right. That's never going to change. I mean, that's a, you go back. I was watching a PBS special last night and they were in you know, New Hampshire in 1992, don't believe the media, the lying media. I mean, that's a trope that's been around for a, a long time. But I, I guess what I'm trying to argue is we've approached this election, I say again, the royal we, in the same way we approach every election, which is he said this, she said that, here's kind of what the record shows, here's some of the politics behind it. And Donald Trump, in, in some way, has understood that we're in a post accuracy environment in which the public is less 
inclined to judge candidates on some standard of truthfulness or non-hypocrisy. The birther is a perfect example. Perfect she example. started, I finished it. Right. Neither right. of which are true. Right. And so you can write that, and we can say that, and we can call them a liar in the headline, but for a sizable portion of the electorate, it doesn't matter but, but that in a way that we don't understand going in, that they it might have mattered 25 years ago. You well, call dynamic, Pat Buchanan a liar, and people go, oh, he's a liar. Now it doesn't matter. That dynamic may be true, David, but does that how does that reflect on the performance of the media? Does the media need to adjust to that, or is the media what the media is? You write the story, you, you state what the facts are. If he's inaccurate, you say that, and you move on. You know, if, well, if that's, the that's world what I think is moved, changing in this very moment, and I think like so, I think the you know, maybe birther right. thing won't matter in the end. But you, you know, the New York Times in its lead story used the the word lie in the headline. Mm-hmm. That that that's different, and 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 so I think what you see is. Various media respond, you know, struggling with this issue because they don't want to be seen as partisan, but also want to be advocates for the truth. Right. If the candidate was anyone else other than Donald Trump, I'm not sure we're having this conversation. It's Trump, and then, and maybe in 2020 we revert back to the way it's sort of always been, or maybe not. Well, Who that's knows? a that's a subject for the uh, a podcast after the election yeah. as to whether Donald Trump was a you know a unicorn, a black swan, or whether this is a fundamental change in our both, politics. David. But I will tell you this. From my own experience, when I, in the late 80s, started doing the thing where you look at accuracy in ads, when I first started that project, campaigns and candidates were really focused on the judgments that I would make. They, you know, oh, we'll rephrase it or let let me send you some backup information. Now, largely, they don't care. They largely don't care at Mm -hmm. all. You're one guy, you're one voice in a declining medium. And they're going to see my ad hundreds of times, and maybe I'll put it on a tweet so it'll be seen in places you can't even get to it. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of a post-truth environment politically, where candidates have decided that the electorate no longer values as its highest value truth and non-hypocrisy, if you will. They think everyone's going to lie and everyone's a hypocrite, so let's get that off the table, and now we like him because he's you know, anti-trade or he's immigrants or whatever. And I don't think we have a model for that as reporters. We're in an age of a a heightened level of cynicism that we haven't experienced, at least in politics, in a century or more. And so my argument is when this is over, it'll be extraordinarily important to know whether this is, in essence, what politics have become or whether it is just a one-time, we-never-saw-this-coming reality TV show guy. Because if if it is what politics is going to become, you know, not only reporters, but all of us in the political industry need to rethink how we approach, in my view, approach voters and ask them to make decisions. Because if there is no absolute standard of accuracy or hypocrisy or whatever, uh, it, you know, we're but, in but for it, a it, wild it, ride. <laughs> but it will always be the job of the media to hold candidates accountable for their statements, to, right. to keep them, to, to, to aim for the truth as best we can get it. But, but, here, but here's that what I'm saying, will Steve. never change. Right. But it is also the, the, the role of the voter to do that. And that, I, I don't think our role has changed, but the voter, the voter may be changing the way he or she approaches these decisions. But, but, I think, but your question originally was, how is the media performing right. in this new and, environment? And, and so my and argument is that the media hasn't figured that out yet. That what, we're, what we're all wrestling with and all the pushing and shoving and all the false equivalency is 
uh, given in our world, Steve, has always been facts matter. But, but, but and, how? And, and may, it may be that we're entering an era because of the decline of media or because of the way there are alternatives to reach people that facts become less important for the electorate. But, but I'm arguing right now that I'm not sure that changes anything. for that the, we That's do. where the world's going. How can the media possibly operate in a world where if no one cares about facts, then we're out right. of business? And that's what I think some of the push is against Donald Trump is, for whatever reason, reporters should be more aggressive in saying, look, not only is he post-factual, but he would be you know, a problem, he's not fit or whatever, which then makes it more of a partisan argument than sort of a nonpartisan argument. And right. it's a very, right. <laughs> you know, as we sort of wrap up this deep background podcast, have we ever been through such a strange election time, Scott? I mean, it's really, it's the hardest thing really to gauge. Maybe it's been strange and we just forget about it in our old age. No, I, I, I think you're right about this post-factual world. And it's, it, and it's, it really is, Trump has been change things in a way we haven't seen and it just to your media question it, it it puts journalists in a more difficult spot because it increases the pressure to call a spade a spade where doing so will be seen as partisan, partisan right and and we people don't believe it out there but we actually try to play things fairly and, and right. when when things are so tilted one way it doesn't look fair to half yeah. your audience. Yeah. You ever been through such been, a strange thing? No, this is the weirdest election ever. But but this idea that folks don't believe what we, if they disagree with us, if we, we criticize a Democrat, the Democrats don't believe us and vice versa, that's been the case for a number of years now, too. Right, yeah. but it, but Trump is really is, is the, the apotheosis of that. I mean, he is either the beginning of something or the end of something. Exactly, and uh, that's what uh, we don't uh, know. Uh, he may be the end of a 25-year trend that's particularly pronounced in the Republican Party, or he may be the beginning of an approach from all candidates to understand that factual, uh, I mean, again, it, to me anyway, it's not about lying because all politicians shade the truth and they all emphasize things and they all are misleading and they all, you know, all of that's been a part of everything I've done for 40 years. But Trump's approach is different. It's somehow, it's much more, as I say, post-factual in my view in which his understanding is no one cares whether I'm telling the truth or not. And I certainly don't care. It's all on the table. Everything is negotiable. <laughs> the color of the sky, you know, what, what, where Barack Obama was born. We all react so, uh, you know, uh, we all wonder how he can say those things. For, for, for Donald Trump, everything's negotiable. It, it, you know, whether, where the president was born, where it's all on the table. And we're just not used to covering that kind of thing. Not in my experience. Right. right. Scott right. Cannon with the Kansas City Star. And yeah. Steve Kraske with KCUR is up to date in the Kansas City Star. Thanks for being Thanks, with David. us. Again, I um, apologize for last week. We'll try and do this every Wednesday until Election Day. Uh, subscribe. Send us emails. Tell your friends about Deep Background. And uh, we'll get through this somehow going forward. <laughs> Thanks again, fellas. You've been on Deep Background.